Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. I'm Shreya Gupta, and with the rest of the BTK team here, we have in discussion Dr. Jonathan Hernandez. Dr. Hernandez is a surgeon scientist and a principal investigator at NCI, National Institutes of Health. He graduated medical school with honors from University of Florida, completed general surgery training at University of South Florida. During his surgical residency, he spent two years at Moffitt Cancer Center, where he studied liver metastases. He completed fellowship training in both surgical oncology and HPB surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. During his fellowship, he further spent two years to dedicated basic science research in an NIH-funded lab. Only three years as an attending, Dr. Hernandez has authored over 70 peer-reviewed publications and contributed to book chapters in numerous surgical textbooks. Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Knife today, Dr. Hernandez. This is one introduction I can say that I'm in awe every time I read it. You have accomplished so much in your career at such a young age. And with that, we would like to kick off our podcast. Our very first question to you. Tell us a little bit more about your journey thus far. Well, let, let me say thank you for that that kind introduction. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Uh, so I I don't have I didn't have any sort of higher calling to medicine. I kind of went to college and thought maybe maybe I'll give science a try. It doesn't it seems like it's not that hard. Uh, and so that worked out for me. And then I found myself in medical school, and I I really had no clue what I wanted to do. And on my surgery rotation, I, it was my general surgery rotation. I had just finished plastics, and I thought, oh, plastics isn't so bad. Maybe maybe something I could do. And we sewed in a lot of drains and things like that. And the general surgeon attending looked at me, and he said, why don't you sew in that drain? And he started to tell me how to do it. And I said, yeah, yeah, that's sort of how I would, that's sort of how I do it. He looked at me, and he, he swore at me, and he said something to the effect of, what do you know? You're just, just a medical student. And I thought, this seems like a good idea for me. I think I fit in well here. And I went to residency, and um, I, I did residency in Tampa, and we did a lot of big cancer operations. And I really enjoyed the technical parts of big cancer surgery. Um, however, it's on some level a, a, a stupid idea in truth. I mean, uh, we don't cure most people. We like to think we're helping people, but there's there's so much to be studied, and there's so much to do. Um, as far as understanding the complex biology, uh, it became very clear to me early on that more surgery probably isn't going to do anyone any better. And what we need to understand is, is cancer biology. And I've said for a number of years, I think surgery is a very, as a mechanical solution to an incredibly complex biological problem. Uh, and I still believe that to this day. It just so happens that it's probably better than any other of the solutions we have, um, but still, we it's not a very good one. And so my career path has taken me to a number of years of, of research and search for better answers, and uh, that's kind of where I am today, I guess you could say. Um, I guess the next thing I want to go into is being a surgeon scientist. You know, we, we get a, a few people on here that really 
um, exemplify that type of role, a surgeon scientist. You know, we all like to think we are, but to truly do a lot of research takes a lot of time. So tell us what your normal week looks like and how much you get to operate, how much, how do you divide your time being, you know, a researcher versus a sur actually in the operating room? Yeah, that That's a great question. In order for me to answer that question, I need to really um, describe to you what it's like working at the NIH because it's such a very, it's such a different environment from any other really academic department of surgery. So we don't have constraints on us that other departments do. For example, we don't bill anybody. We don't even have a billing department. I have no idea how to bill anybody. Uh, and so all of these RVU constraints and you need to do this, all of that is we're free from that. The other thing I'm entirely free from is writing grants. Uh, grants take up a lot of time. Grantsmanship, there is, there is a word grantsmanship because there's an R to this. And, and that, that should lead people to understand that, that this takes a skill to do this. Um, working at the NIH, we don't, we're just given the money. So my job is called a tenure track investigator. And basically I'm given a huge pot of money to hire I think I have nine people in the lab now, um, and I'm given intellectual freedom to do whatever I want. If tomorrow I wanted to study virology and hepatitis C, I, I could do that. We could change the lab entirely tomorrow. I haven't written a grant. I'm not constrained in any way, but but it comes with an expectation. And the expectation for us, for me, is that I, I do something new for the field. Uh, and so I don't, you know, you know, my mix of how I, how I run things is, is going to be different than most people. And so it's, it's necessary that I describe that for you, that we just, I have this huge pot of money and I have all these resources. It's not forever. I have to make a contribution. I have about eight years to do it. And if I don't, I have to leave. Uh, it states very clearly in my contract. And so my, my time is really, I don't spend a lot of time writing grants. I do spend a fair amount of time um, planning out experiments. And we've done something different. Um, and that's really my task anyways. I have to do something different. And, and I'll get into this a bit later. But my week generally looks like I operate Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I usually like to say I'd like to do one pancreas and one liver case a week. And I'd like to slow it down to really really that, although that's never really the truth. It always ends up being more. Um, but that's kind of how my week looks. Mondays are mostly uh, meetings with lab and, and the research nurses. Um, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are operating. And that usually takes me to about two o'clock. And then from two to about eight o'clock at night, I spend reading and, and uh, thinking about research and, and coming up with new stuff. Friday, I'm usually in clinic most of the day. Kind of how my week looks. So you already mentioned you know, one of the cruxes of being a surgeon scientist is, you know, getting that funding so that you can maintain the lab. And it's very interesting that, you know, you don't, you're not spending that time writing the grants, but um, how do you see that balance for other surgeon scientists who are already a rare breed in our field in, and kind of the future of how to develop more surgeon scientists uh, without putting on this extra burden on them of getting these grants while they are trying to maintain their, you know, clinical status? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. And uh, I can tell you it's something I worried about a great deal before I came to the NIH. 
I don't think there's ever going to be a workaround for writing grants unless you work at the NIH. What I do think, but I do think there's training problems. I think there are, there are fundamental problems in all this. And you mentioned the rare breed. There's a, there's a reason it's a rare breed. It's, I would say the training is, is not right for what we do. If you want to be a surgeon, think about what happens to you. Most people will go through five years of general surgery. And in the middle of that, sometime after their second year or potentially after their third year, depending on the program, you'll spend two years doing science somewhere maybe at your home institution, maybe somewhere else, you will then go back and do two or three years of finish your general surgery. And then you'll go into fellowship and you'll do probably surgical oncology if you're interested in cancer, or you'll do whatever fellowship interests you. You will have left science for four to five years. And then you're going to go back and you're going to compete with people who that's all they do is science. So I think the training paradigm sets us up for largely for failure. Uh, and so I, I would say the solution probably is to, you know, uh, I can tell you what I did. And, and that is I, I did extra years in the lab at the end of my fellowship just before I graduated. So uh, and I felt unprepared to run a lab otherwise. Uh, probably some people are better at it than I am. But but I felt unprepared if, had I not done that. It just would have been so long since I was in the lab. It, it just would. I, I just felt unprepared. And so by doing it very close to the end of the training, um, I'd, I'd been in the lab. I carried the stuff over. I brought with me things I was doing at Sloan Kettering to the NIH. I wasn't going back to something I hadn't done in a very long time. So I would say the training paradigm is wrong for people. Uh, and if you really want to do that, you should really consider doing extra research time toward the end of your clinical fellowship. The, the other thing that becomes very difficult with the surgeon science par scientist paradigm is you have to, you know, the clinical, the clinical responsibilities are, are great. Um, you don't want to leave clinical surgery altogether. I would highly advise against doing that to anyone in surgical training unless you're just not comfortable being a clinician. In which case, that's fine. Understand your skill set. That's an important tenet of, of being successful. But you spend a huge amount of time training to do these technical operations. You really don't want to leave that. And so then it becomes a balance of doing enough such that you're adequate or good at taking care of patients. And still, you, you need to maintain this, this um, science, presence in science. And you need to maintain you know, the, that skill set as well. And so that becomes very hard. And you throw in having to write grants on top of that. This becomes a very hard thing, which is why, as you said, this is a rare breed of, of people. And so I think it works best if you do training at the end of fellowship and you you overlap greatly as much as you can what you do in the lab and what you do clinically. If those two processes are totally di divorced from one another, you, you are potentially requiring you're going to require yourself to be an expert in two different things altogether that's very hard for anyone to do um i don't think anyone's going to get around the grant writing um that i just don't see that changing um unfortunately so if there was a surgical uh, general surgery resident coming up to you at the end of second year um looking to see they've never done research before and they just want to know, is research for them? Like, should they be investing their time in science? And if they think that they do have some sort of interest in science, what advice would you give um, to them 
so that they could shape their careers in a certain way that sets them up for success, sets them up for to be able to write grants in the future, to be able to run a lab in the future. So, I, I, I mean, I think you, you, you've asked two questions there. I'm going to answer it in two ways. So for a general surgery resident interested in doing research, so I think you have to ask that person where they want to be after general surgery. Uh, the truth of the matter is we live in a world where your card has to be stamped. Uh, you're probably not going to do groundbreaking cancer research if you don't become a cancer. If, if, if you're a surgeon and don't do cancer specialty, uh, I think that's probably unlikely. So if the person's aspirations are for surgical oncology, then I would highly advise them to take the two years out. And we, we wrote a study recently uh, about the, basically who matriculates and who doesn't matriculate to surgical oncology. Shreya, now you and I are writing a paper as well about pediatric surgery. And, and these two competitive fellowships are going to look pretty similar as far as what I'm about to say. And that is you need to publish papers and you need to be involved in uh, academia as far as being involved in research, writing papers, the, this sort of thing. And if you don't do that, you're unlikely to match, or you're at least far less likely. And so I would say to that general surgery resident, if you're interested in one of these things, and you may not know for sure, and that's fine, um, you, but you don't want to close doors off. If you, this may be something you want to do, then you, you should spend the time doing two years of research. Few people who'd spend that two years of research are going to be a surgeon scientist. But it gives you fundamental knowledge about how things work, how that, how how research works, uh, and you will. It, you, I think you'll be a better overall um, physician for it. I, I do think that, uh, and so I would encourage anyone who's interested in one of these highly competitive fellowships that they absolutely that, that they should consider taking the two years off, and they should fully engage in the research enterprise wherever that may be for them. The second thing you asked about is how to be a surgeon scientist. And this goes back to this. That, that is just the bare minimum one would have to do is spend that time in research. And the other thing that came out of the study is getting extra letters after your last name doesn't really help you any more than the two you probably already have. So, I, I, you know, this thinking, I need a Ph.D. On, I don't think that that's accurate. I don't think it will hurt you. I think it may help a little bit, but it, it's I would say for someone very interested, I, I don't think it's necessary. Um, but to be at the surgeon scientist, again, you're going to, and you're in the, the general surge for the general surgery resident, you're thinking about all these things in the middle of your general surgery training. You have to finish your general surgery training. So you're going to spend your two years in research. You're going to come back and finish, and hopefully you're going to match into the, the fellowship of your choice. But again, once you finish that two years of clinical fellowship, you're going to be a long way away from that research you did. If you really want to make a surgeon scientist thing a career for you, you ought to think about doing an additional year or even two at the end. Now, we're talking a lot of years. Um, certainly, it was for me. I think I spent a total of 11 years in fellowship, uh, residency and fellowship all combined. Um, but that's the kind of commitment you probably need to need to have to really to really give yourself a, a really competitive edge. Oh yeah, I just like to take that one step further. You know, there are people who, you know, don't continue on this is a very small proportion now that don't continue on through fellowship right after general surgery training. What do you what are your recommendations for somebody who 
you know, decided not to pursue fellowship and uh, maybe now wants to apply to a surgical oncology or pediatric surgery fellowship and maybe, you know, three or four years after uh, after residency, how can they get more, you know, involved in research without being at a, maybe, maybe they've not, maybe they're not have a ticket job near a, a large university or something like that. What types of things could you recommend for them? Yeah, so when, when one applies to one of these fellowships, uh, these programs have criteria that they're going to use to interview somebody. And I'm going to speak uh, about surgical oncology specifically because that's mostly what I know about. And we just completed a, a, a fellowship survey, a, a, a survey of all the fellowship directors across the country for surgical oncology. Uh, everybody but one program completed this the survey. Uh, and so what I'm about to tell you is reflective of what those program directors said in the survey. Um, you basically, there are requirements. And so for the, for the general surgery resident who maybe didn't take any time off, is in practice for a few years and really wants to apply, what you, you have to understand is your CV is going to go up against the CV of people who've done a fair amount of research. And if you really don't have, so there, there are minimums. Most programs would say there's a minimum number of publications and there's a minimum number of first authored publications. That minimum number of first author publications probably in the range of one to three, and the minimum number of publications on your CV may be somewhere around five. Uh, that and you you probably also have absite minimums. Uh, for sixty percent of the programs, they thought the absite minimum was going to be at least the fiftieth percentile. And if you're somebody who has those minimums and you're out in practice. Um, I think that you may be competitive if you are somebody who simply doesn't because you never took time off. And certainly we understand the rigors uh, of general surgery requirements and call and all of these things. Um, then you really ought to think about if you really want to do this, you probably need to spend some time in research. And we have had people at the NIH and, and um, the way the match works now for surgical oncology, it's now a fourth year match. So that really requires somebody who's going to come from after general surgery residency. You probably need to spend at least three years with us because in, in a year's time, you're not, your CV isn't going to be bolstered enough. Um, so you're probably talking about three years time. That's a long time to be away from practice early on in your career. Uh, and so the, I've counseled people like this before that I think they should, if they're going to consider doing this, they should moonlight and keep their clinical skills up as best as they can. But it's risky. It's a risky endeavor either way. I think it's probably best if you identify that you may be one of these people interested in a competitive fellowship that you do the time in the, in the middle of your training and, and uh, write as many papers as you can to make yourself competitive. Well, I know a lot of our listeners really do enjoy that type of advice, especially coming from somebody who uh, will look at, you know, fellowship applications. And we've had, you know, dedicated podcasts specifically for this. But I think that's the first time we've really looked into what it takes to become a surgeon scientist, if that's something and someone currently in residency or even a medical student is interested in doing. So for future planning, I like to shift gears just a little bit. Um, you know, the one thing I really like about surgical oncology is uh, is that it's probably one of the few medical or surgical specialties now that it's really involved in a medical standpoint, especially because it's so research based. Uh, what do you what do you foresee as being the future of surgical oncology? Uh, you know, we have different, many different pharmaceutical companies and biologics and immunotherapy options on the horizon. Uh, what do you think is going to stand out in the next 10 years? 
Yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. Uh, certainly, in the next few years, immunotherapy is going to remain um, a very prominent um, role for the treatment of patients with cancer. But I, so uh, I guess I would say, um, where do I see? So I'm going to answer that in a in a different way. Um, I'm going to say that. Let me. I'm going to go back to the survey. So I'm going to go back to people interested in surgical oncology. And what I would say is that what we learned from the program directors is that they are very interested. Uh, the number one thing that they use to rank to decide whether they're going to put you on the rank list or not is your interview. Your and it's three things specifically. It's your ability to work as a team player. It's your communication skills. And it's uh, your, the way you interact with the other people, the other people being not just the other, not just the faculty, but the other interview candidates, the the support staff. This kind of thing matters. Now, you got to take a step back and ask yourself why that matters. It, that matters because cancer isn't treated in a vacuum. You're not we're not just cutting stuff out and then sending it on the down the line to the next person who's going to give the chemotherapy. Then maybe the next person who's going to give that. That, that results in suboptimal outcomes. This is a team sport. Nobody has all of the answers. And so, you know, we need to, you need to think about the treatment of a patient with cancer in a multidisciplinary type fashion involving all of the people, involving medical oncology, involving radiation oncology, involving surgery. That, that paradigm is probably results in the best outcomes for patients. Now, as time goes on, I think, you know, you're, you're going to see certain drugs, um, you're going to see more immunotherapy play a role. And that probably isn't going to be given by the surgeon, but it, it will p play a role for sure. How big a role I'm, you know, right now, everyone say, oh, it's the next best thing. That that may be true, but, you know, things Things probably come in waves, and and it will settle out, and it will be a mainstay of cancer treatment, uh, but it's probably not going to be given by surgeons, would be my guess. And so the way I see oncology evolving uh, is that that way, in a multidisciplinary type fashion, and it's important that surgeons, uh, surgical oncologists, the aspiring surgical oncologists, understand that. Uh, for us at the NIH, the way I see this happening is. We don't have adequate models to really reflect cancer biology. Um, uh, you, there's an old saying, you want to target the phenotype, not the genotype. Well, it turns out the genotype has become very easy to, to characterize now. Uh, we now can do it on a single cell basis. I think every institution across the country, uh, probably every cancer center has next generation sequencing. We've learned a whole lot about the genome, but the, but the phenotype of the tumor cells themselves, the phenotype of what's happening, the biology is very hard uh, to understand, to interrogate. It's very hard. Uh, and so we're working on, we personally, are, we, we are working on models to better understand this. But I think the next best thing is going to come from when we better understand tumor biology. We have to move from genotype only to looking at phenotype. Uh, and that, that is a leap, and it's very hard. So you've touched on this a little bit, but 
you know, there's an importance to surgeons being involved in these teams, both from the clinical standpoint, but also from the research standpoint. And all of us on this recording um, are doing or have done research. Um, but a lot of our listeners are maybe either not interested in doing research or, you know, are in community programs or are out in practice already. And, um, you know, even research is shifting uh, towards a lot of outcomes and quality improvement and other sorts of styles that aren't this basic science or translational style research. So my question for you is, when you mentioned that in order for someone who wants to do surgical oncology, it's you recommend these three years of research, et cetera, et cetera. In your mind, do you feel that that is mandatory for everyone or are there surgical oncologists who can become that without going through this three years of dedicated research time? You've asked a, a very good question, and this is something uh, that's come up in conversation with some of the program directors around the country. And that is, why aren't we training the person who's going to go into community practice and really do all the surgery, really do the surgical oncology? Um, should we be training that person? Uh, and I think that's still one of the one of the unanswered questions in surgical oncology education, uh, because you cannot have like you look at certain departments of surgery. You cannot have a department of surgery made up of all surgeon scientists. That department probably doesn't do enough work, uh, clinical work, uh, and so it it becomes a bit uh, it it becomes a difficult and and it's an unanswered question about who should we train. Um, what I can tell you is if you want to do surgical oncology fellowship, you probably need to do the lab time and you need to develop your CV. That doesn't mean you're you're destined for this uh, surgeon scientist track. That's that, that that is not true. And if I if I came if that if that came across, uh, I'd like to correct myself because that's not true. You probably need that time in order to get the fellowship. Um, but once what you do after the fellowship, most people will go into clinical practice. Um, and so, and that should be that that should be seen as what you should do. We are training people to be clinical surgical oncologists. We want to train them to have a research background because we it's not like we have great answers to these, some of these complex problems. We want to train them to work as part of a multidisciplinary team because that is the way the patients are managed best. Um, but but that doesn't mean you need to be a surgeon scientist. Few people will be one of the surgeon scientists, and and probably rightfully so. I mean. We're trained to be surgeons. That's probably what we should be. That was very, very well put, uh, Dr. Hernandez. I would like to now kind of uh, dive in deeper into our dissection of the day. We kind of touched on this topic uh, with the two uh, big studies that have just come out about surgical oncology fellowship that were authored by you. And I would like to take this segment and kind of talk uh, more about those two papers. So. Before we keep moving forward, just for our listeners who may not have uh, much knowledge about surgical oncology fellowship uh, competitiveness, the match rate for this fellowship is about 37%. Only 37% applicants end up in surgical oncology fellowships. That being said, your paper for the first time illustrated objectively objective measures and profile profiling of candidates that do apply and then matriculate into these fellowships. What made you study this? What were uh, 
how did this come about? Yeah, so I would say necessity uh, is really the mother of invention, mostly. And so I walked into the NIH uh, um, not quite three years ago, and uh, there was a bunch of residents around a table, and people, you know, had these thoughts that oh, because they're they're spending their research time at the NIH, they were going to match in surgical oncology. And I said that is absolutely not true. You are not guaranteed anything. In fact, let me show you how we evaluated people at Sloan Kettering. We put them on a spreadsheet, and I said these are the 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 uh, the columns on the spreadsheet. And if your column has a zero here, you're probably not going to get an interview. One of the columns on the spreadsheet wasn't did they spend time at the NIH. I promise you that uh, that wasn't one of the columns. And so I think I scared a bunch of people. Um, and one of the fellows realized that we had, one of the residents realized that we had a contract with AAMC and we got all of the applicant data, um, for a period of three years. And then now we got pooled data. We didn't have individual data because that would have violated people's, uh, you know, you know, sort of, um, that, that would have compromised their identity and we weren't trying to do that. So we got pooled data. And this was really born out of that. I, I basically said, you can't, you need to have publications. You cannot simply walk out of here and say, I went to the NIH and did research and think you're going to match. You need to put in a day gone by, pen to paper, uh, now type on a keyboard, but this is what you need to do. Um, and so that's how this, this, this paper sort of happened. Um, and what we realized, what we showed was that, um, those who matched compared to those who didn't match, they had 10 publications versus five. They were more likely to publish in higher impact journals, and we called high impact journals greater than 10, that being because the highest surgical journal impact factor, uh, annals of surgery was somewhere around eight or nine or something. So we said anywhere 10 or above. And so these are the, so I, basically this resident went to the AAMC and he put the data behind what I was otherwise telling them. And that's how that study really happened. So you then did a follow-up study um, after the success of your initial objective measure study. How, uh, how did you structure that and what did that entail? Well, so uh, the first study, I was very careful that I did not want this to be considered a roadmap on how to get a fellowship because there are so many unquant unquantifiable characteristics about a person that data like the AAMC is never going to capture. For example, the interview. Uh, and so I, I, I basically thought, well, why don't we compose a survey? I'll go to all of the program directors around the country. I'll pick a handful of them and we'll develop this survey and then we'll distribute it to the rest of them. Um, and that's sort of how that happened. Um, thankfully, people thought it was a good idea as well, and almost everybody in the country did it for us. Um, so that worked out. Would you mind sharing some of the key features or the key things that came out that yeah, maybe sure. residents who are thinking of applying into surgical oncology in coming years should be keeping keeping in mind? Sure. Uh, so I'll speak about programs in general. Uh, so programs in general have cutoffs about what they think you should have in your application. So the first part of this I'm going to talk about is going to be how do you get an interview? Um, most programs have an absite cutoff. 62%, I believe, have an absite cutoff, and that's usually about the 50th percentile. I do want to tell people, though, if you have an off year, uh, that can be offset by having, you know, consistent good years. And so you shouldn't freak out if you 
if you have a, a particularly bad year for whatever reason. Uh, the next thing is people have an ex programs have an expectation that you will have had at least one to three first author publications and your total number of publications on your CV should be around five at least. That's, that's a, a common, that was a common cutoff number. Although there are some programs with no cutoff, there were some programs with higher cutoff, but I would say you know, three to five is probably, uh, a cutoff and th that's what they're using. So that's, so if you don't meet those benchmarks, your application will probably be triage and you probably won't get an interview. Uh, but I would say there is variability among all the programs. And so these these are the what I would call the average sort of benchmarks for people. Uh, but once you got that interview, uh, then things be the interview itself is very important. It is the most important determinant on as to whether or not you will be included on the rank list. And uh, when we broke down components of the interview, uh, the the program directors felt that communication skills and interactions with others were the most important things uh, uh, as part of that interview uh, in deciding whether or not to rank you. They felt also that research, your research and your productivity were second behind the interview. Uh, and so that gives you a glimpse about what they think, what kind of benchmarks, you know, people are have, you know, programs will have. Now, we did not break it down by the specific programs, and we purposely did not do that. Um, you know, but at least, you know, I think this gives the most um, realistic expectations to potential applicants for complex general surgical oncology. And if you take the two studies together, I, I think you can probably figure out what you need to do to get interviews at most places. Um, so thank you for that dissection today, Dr. Hernandez. Now I'd like to move on to the uh, tips and tricks portion of our podcast. Uh, and specifically with you, I'd like to talk about the topic of metastases. I know you've done plenty of work in this uh, in this realm. Um, and I, I think it's important to kind of start with the the first part where you're encountering a patient who has diagnosed probably liver metastases uh, and knowing your background in lab work and research, how do you, how do you approach that patient? Uh, and, and is that giving you a different type of insight than, you know, another general surgeon or a surgical oncologist does not do a lot of research? So uh, the, the approach to patients with metastatic disease is, is, individualized because not all uh, not all patients are the same the locations of the metastases are different the timing of when the disease developed is different and all of these things need to be weighed uh, as far as whether you think an operation is going to benefit them in any way and of course you must account for the disease type uh, certain diseases really don't benefit from metastasectomy uh, it just doesn't do the patient any good and so in, in approaching individual patients, it needs to be highly individualized. Um, it, when speaking about metastases to the liver, I, I don't want to get too technical, but so I'm going to try and I'm going to try and speak about things on a more broad scale. You, you want to think about uh, timing of things and you want to try and the best gauge you want to you want to get a barometer and in your head you want to develop a barometer for each individual patient. What is this? What is this biology like? What is the pace of this disease? Is this somebody who's the next scan I'm going to do after this operation? Are they going to have a hundred more lesions? In which case, I've done them zero good. Uh, you you want to do that. Your best bet to do that is time. 
And so you want to look at the timing of things. Uh, you want to look at their response to chemotherapy. They've been on chemotherapy a long time. They've had really stable disease. Um, that may be a person you want to think about doing something a bit more aggressive. Uh, for the person who presents with, you know, blossoming disease despite being on chemotherapy, that person has is probably not going to be helped by an aggressive operation. But I, I do want to say that for me, metastases is, 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 yes, the gross stuff you see on the x-ray, but it's also the micrometastatic stuff that you can't see on an x-ray. And that, to me, is the crux of the problem with surgical disease that I deal with on a daily basis is, yes, we can cut out all of the stuff we can see on the x-ray. Sure, I can do that. The trouble, that thing that nobody can do is we can't stop those micrometastatic cells from coming back and forming new lesions. That's why people die. That's why people get into trouble. Uh, it's usually not that we can't remove it. It's that we can't stop it from coming back once we do. And so the focus of my lab is really to understand how that process evolves so that we can prevent it before it happens. We have this window of opportunity in which we give adjuvant therapy. The only trouble with adjuvant therapy is rarely targeted to, to the micrometastatic cells, right? How do you do that? Well, you really just take what works for the macrometastases and apply it in the adjuvant setting. It does, doesn't seem to work very well. And that's a great lead into a question that I have is that you know, we talk about, we're talking about metastatic disease that you know the patient has already had, but then one of the big questions in cancer biology is who is going to develop those METs? And I just wanted to touch into, without going into too much detail, but you're doing something very cool in your lab, which is studying metastatic disease in live human tissue, which hasn't really been done before. Can you just give us an overview of how you even do that. I it's just kind of blows my mind. So I I've taken the the view that um we don't understand anything about micrometastatic biology. It's this black box. Yes, you can probably study it although very hard in mice, but in patients we we have really no idea what happens. Uh and you you can't really open up a patient and inject a bunch of antibodies and try and find various micrometastatic cells. That's not fair and we don't do that. And so what I said was, well, it would be great to do that. So how can we do this? Uh, and so I end up doing liver. I do a lot of liver surgery. So, for example, if I take out the left side of somebody's liver, instead of giving it to a pathologist, what we've started to do is we put it on a machine that's otherwise designed for transplant. Uh, these machines are basically, you can think of them as a heart-lung machine. And so we put that left part of the liver with the tumor and with all of the micrometastatic cells that I know are there, we all know are there. We put that in on the machine and we keep it alive outside of that patient's body. It turns out it's a bit more complex than I, I probably described it. You, um, there's a lot of working parts uh, I won't go into, but we're able to keep this alive for extended periods of time. And in doing so, we now have the ability to manipulate this in any way we see fit. Uh, we don't have to worry about hurting the patient. It's already outside of the patient's body. Uh, we can uh, we can inject whatever antibodies we want to, to any fluorescent labeled antibodies to try and find those micrometastatic cells. And then we can determine the differences between the macrometastases and the micrometastases such that we can now target 
vulnerabilities in the micrometastases. We don't, we just simply don't know about what they look like. What do they look like? Are they quiescent? Are they multiplying? Are they single? Are they in clusters? Are they surrounded by immune cells? We, we don't know this. These are fundamental questions in, in cancer biology. We just don't have a way to answer in patients, but we can using these ex vivo models. And so we started to do so in the lab. Uh, for the past year, we've figured out how to keep this uh, piece of people's livers alive outside of their body. Uh, we've gone out to two days. I think we can go to a week. Uh, that will be enough for, for us to answer, ask, and answer a lot of questions. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that you can try any drugs you want ex vivo without any fear of hurting the patient. We ultimately want to then translate that back to the patient and give them drugs that we think would otherwise work on their tissue outside of their body, but that's another conversation. But that's how we've approached this. I've taken the approach that I don't think we know enough about the micrometastases. We don't have any new adjuvant therapies. There's nothing on the horizon that I'm aware about, except people trying things that worked for stage four disease. They're just going to try it in the adjuvant setting. I don't think that's good enough. I think we need to learn about the biology. And the only way to do that is to keep people's tissues alive outside of their body. If you can tell us, uh, what is the major findings you've had from that like awesome model you developed? I, I've never even heard of that before. Is there anything that you guys have already began to take away? It sounds like almost like a personalized type of care for a patient with metastatic disease is coming forward. Uh, we we see it as a potentially a personalized a type of care for patients with uh, metastases. Uh, I haven't published this yet. We're We're in the process of writing the papers. Um, they will be hopefully published soon, um, but some of these high-impact journals have years of revision, so we'll see. Um, but uh, to, to answer what have we found, uh, I guess you'll have to wait. I mean, I, I don't know that I can sum it all up in a sentence or two. Uh, yeah, I invite you to come. Anyone wants to come to the NIH and have a look at this, we're, we're happy to have them come. We'll just have to have you back on here when that bunch of that study comes out. So Yeah. Happy to do it. <laughs> well, I think at this time, and I, I appreciate your time so far, we like to dive into our last section of the podcast, which is our, our final five. Uh, in this part, we really uh, get a chance for the listeners to get to know who you are on a more personal level. Um, so the first question we have, there's five questions. Uh, is there someone outside of medicine who has been influential in your life and career? Um, yes. Uh, so I would say that, so um, just, so you know, a little bit about me. So when I was in college, I had a daughter. And so she's now 18 and she's at NYU and she keeps me uh, abreast about all of the things that, that people do nowadays that I don't, that I don't do, which is Instagram and all these things that I don't, I don't really know about, although I'm not that old, but still, I don't, I don't really know about all that. And so uh, I would say she's highly influential in keeping me young. Um, my next question for you, what's your favorite movie or a genre of movie? Oh, well, that's, that's a tough question. Do you listen to music in the operating room? And if so, what, or if not, what could we find on your podcast? And what I'd like to know is if your daughter has any influence on your music taste. You know, uh, she does. I like, like today's hit type music. I, I mostly play it for the people in the room. I, I really don't hear it if I'm focused. Uh, toward the end of the case, I, I like more of like, you know, um, 90s hip hop kind of stuff. That that kind of stuff is fun to listen to toward the end of the case. 
Um, but I do listen to music. I, I think it's very important to have fun in the operating room. I would, you know, people often say, what's your stress relief? Well, I like to work out, but uh, I like being in the operating room. It's kind of a stress relief. I mean, it's the only time I get to only think about one thing, which is nice. And I like to have fun with it. You, you know, this is all very serious, but you got to have fun with it. Uh, and so, yeah, I think, uh, you know, playing music that people like, as long as it's not country, because I really don't like country music, um, in the operating room is fine. I like today's hits when we're closing, 90s hip hop would be just fine with me. Uh, I do like that. I think the quote of the podcast is that being in the operating room is going to be, is your form of stress relief. I do. I love that part. But um, the next question, if you were to compete in the Olympics, uh, winter or summer, uh, what event would you want to do? It doesn't have to be anything that you currently do. I'd, I'd say I, I, um, some of my father's from South America and, and, uh, I grew up playing soccer and I, and I really wanted to be an excellent soccer player. Unfortunately, that just wasn't going to happen. Um, uh, but if I could be, if I could be a footballer, a big time footballer, I would be a, I would be a footballer. Uh, our last and final question for you, Dr. Hernandez, do you wear a white coat? And if so, what would we find in or on your white coat? I do wear a white coat occasionally. Um, not, I don't wear it often, but I don't. I don't really have. You would find nothing in the pockets. I I hate the days where I was. My coat was just weighed down with a bunch of stuff in it. And you, the only thing you might find in my white coat pocket is a pen, and that's just really for looks because I don't really write that much down. Uh, and so if I'm wearing a coat, it probably has nothing in the pockets. Uh, it may have a pen in the in the top pocket, but that's you know that's about it. Well, Dr. Hannes, thank you so much for coming on Behind the Knife today. Uh, it's been great. We learned a lot. I've, I've learned something new that I didn't know was going on about keeping a liver outside the, the body and doing stuff with that. So we're looking forward to having you back on in, in the future, however long that may be, uh, to discuss those findings. Yeah, I would love to. Uh, it's exciting. We're, we're, we're nearing publication, and so uh, maybe another year or so we'll be able to talk about that extensively. Until next time, dominate the day.